Hello, everyone, and welcome to BibleQuest.tv, the Tuesday edition. We're glad you're able to join in today to our talk, live Bible talk program. Uh, coming in from Nexton, Pennsylvania, is not Jeff. I, I apologize for that. Jeff is not with us today. But in place of Jeff, guys, we're going to have Jonathan, who is our webcast engineer. He's going to be joining us as a panelist. Hi, Jonathan. How are you doing? I'm doing really good. How are you, Drew? Good. And make sure no one's confused. You're not in Exton. You're in Gettysburg. That's right. Yeah. And that's where Scott is. Scott, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. How are you today, Drew? Doing very good. And Stephen from Harrisburg, PA. How are you doing, Stephen? Doing well, Drew. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, everybody. And, you know, I keep telling everybody, we want you to um, give us your questions. Text us your questions, either using the Zoom app or if you're coming in on the Facebook page, just put your text in the, in the comment box. Um, or if you want to come in on our audio, no one's done that one yet, but you can come in on audio if you want to ask a question using your computer audio. Or if you're coming in by telephone, you can use your audio there as well. Uh, okay, guys, we got an interesting, some would say uh, controversial topic today. It came in for a question from a a viewer by the name of Mike, and Mike said that um, he was asked about the, Michael the Archangel in a in a discussion, and uh, he was really wanting to know who is Michael the Archangel, and uh, what's his job? What does he do? Uh, before I get into, in fact, I won't even bring up what some of the controversy is. We'll just go right into it. Let's identify who is Michael. And, and right before we do that, I'd like to thank Mike for the question. Uh, and the, the study works a whole lot better when we have questions coming in. And right now, that's the only question we have for today. So if you're in the audience and you've got a Bible question, we would love to hear from you. Uh, so you can, uh, Drew can tell you in a minute how to post those questions. There's a couple of easy ways to do it. Uh, but we're looking for your questions, questions like the one that Mike submitted that we'll be looking at. We probably won't spend the whole program on that. So if you've got a question, let us know. Maybe we'll be able to get to it today. If not, uh, hopefully maybe next next week. Yeah, uh, and, and the questions come in right now as you're texting them in on the Zoom app or in the Facebook comment page. Now, keep in mind, on Facebook, um, you're watching the program about a 15 to 20-minute delay. So when you text it in and we get it a little bit later than that, it, it may look like we're not responding to you quickly, but that's the close of the delay. Um, and that. That should take care of it. Oh, yeah. Um, no, that's all right. We'll save that for later on. But, yeah, we do want your questions. And uh, go Since ahead. Q&A format, if we don't get the cues, then it's just A. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, Michael, the archangel. Um, and specifically, the question had to do with whether or not Jesus is Michael, the archangel. But before we get into that, what does the Bible say about Michael? Michael is mentioned in three books of the Bible. He is mentioned in the book of Daniel, twice in chapter 10 and once in chapter 12. He's mentioned in Jude, verse 9. And he's mentioned in Revelation 12, verse 7. So we, we don't have just a lot of references to Michael name by name. Um, but those are the three books he shows up in. Say, so Stephen, did, did, you, did you say earlier that the only place that he's identified as Michael as the archangel was in Jude, right? That's correct. Jude verse nine is the only place where he's named as the archangel. The term archangel only comes up twice in the new Testament. 
once in Jude, and the other time is in First Thessalonians 4.16. And there, it doesn't say who the archangel is. It just says, with, with the voice of the archangel. So let's read the passage from Thessalonians and the passage from Revelation 12 and start getting an idea of what we're looking here. So who's got the passage in 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 13? Revelation. Someone else have that one. I hope. First Yeah, this one's First Thessalonians four, verse thirteen. Yeah, I'll read that. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who have fallen asleep, that they may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, though through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of, a, with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and all the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Okay, so first let's just make sure we understand the context here. Paul's writing back to the Thessalonians, who have been facing a lot of opposition and some persecution. Uh, they're young saints. He's writing back. He's uh, commending their good stance. But apparently some have died, and he wants them to know what. Just kind of sum up this text for us. You, they're worried about Christians who've already died, and are they going to miss the resurrection? You know, what's, what's going on? And so Paul is writing to reassure them that no, those who have died in the Lord are actually going to get to go first. And so he has some clarifications about what's going to happen. All right. Yeah. They're not missing out on the second coming. Uh, they will rise first. Then we that are left, uh, uh, that are alive, that are left. But side note, this isn't what the question is about. But a lot of people use passage to prove the rapture. And they stop with the first part, the dead in Christ will rise first. And they assume the dead not in Christ rise later. That's not the contrast here. It's the dead in Christ rise first, then the alive in Christ are, are caught up. All right. Now, the argument is presented, and actually this is an argument, this is a doctrine taught by the Jehovah's Witnesses, and an argument that they make from this text goes as follows. Jesus is the archangel. Now, this is not what I'm saying. It's not what the Bible's saying. This is what the Jehovah's Witness teach. Jesus is not divine. Jesus is not deity. Jesus is not God. Jesus is an angel. Specifically, he is Michael the archangel, and this passage shows it. And so I'll present the argument as they would. Verse 16, who's going to descend from heaven? The Lord. And he comes with the voice of who? Archangel. Archangel. So he's the archangel. Uh, we heard Drew's voice a minute ago. Who did Drew's voice come from? Drew. <laughs> so Drew is Drew. Drew. <laughs> Therefore, Jesus is Michael the archangel. Response. Uh, wouldn't he also then be a trumpet? <laughs> yes, yes, he would also then be a trumpet. Because it says, the Lord himself will descend from heaven uh, with a shout with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. So there's three things he comes with, with a shout, 
with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God. If the fact that he can't, those things come with him means he is that, then is he a trumpet? No, Jesus is not a trumpet. It says he comes with the trumpet, comes with the shout, comes with the voice of the archangel. It doesn't mean he's the shout or Michael or the trumpet. That's helpful to see. And, and even though Michael isn't named here in First Thessalonians 4, I guess the argument would be the only other reference we have to Archangel is Michael in right. Jude 9. So Jesus is Michael, which doesn't really make a lot of sense. Uh, Jesus, uh, we're going to see some distinctions, don't we, between angels and Jesus in different parts uh, of yeah. the Bible? Yeah. Uh, I think about... Let's go to Revelation 12. Let's go to Revelation 12 and see what it says about Jesus and Michael. And then look at some of those distinctions in Revelation between what's done before angels and what's done before Michael. After you do the distinction, uh, Scott, are you going to do the distinction? And then afterwards, uh, maybe gives the references as to what his job is, what what he does as the archangel? Well, we'll see one of the things he does right here in Revelation 12. Uh, And so... What does the word angel mean, by the way? Messenger. Messenger, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, do we know everything that God's messengers do? Certainly not. Uh, the, uh, so we might not know all that he does, but we'll see one thing that he does here in Revelation chapter 12. Okay, so Revelation 12, verse 1. This is, by the way, one of the key passages in the book of Revelation. If you understand Revelation 12, it helps you understand more of the whole book. Uh, And it doesn't sometimes, some of the other details sometimes get focused on and miss the point of Revelation 12. So let's look at this core central chapter of Revelation. A great sign was seen in heaven. A woman arrayed with the sun and the moon uh, under her feet and upon her head a crown of 12 stars. She was with child. She cries out, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. There was seen another sign in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail draws a third of the part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. The dragon stands before the woman that is about to be delivered, that when she is delivered, he may do what? Devour her. Devour. Yeah, so before we get into identifying the child and the dragon, uh, just if you just see, if you're watching a movie and in this corner you see a pregnant woman in labor and in this corner you see a great red dragon whose tail knocks a third of the stars out of the heavens, uh, what, what's the impression you get here? No contest. <laughs> yes. Yes. This looks hopeless, which is a powerful image for a young faith, which is now being attacked by and going to be being attacked by the Roman Empire, the mightiest empire in the world. That looks kind of hopeless, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. But let's keep reading. Uh, verse 5, she is delivered of a son, a man-child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Where have we seen this before about ruling with a rod of iron? Psalm 2. Psalm 2, which is what kind of a psalm? It's a messianic psalm. Yeah, and it's quoted by the apostles as applying to Christ uh, in the book of Acts 
So who does it look like this child is, obviously? This is Jesus. And then the next text says, in fact, her child was caught up unto God and unto his throne. Psalm 110, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit at my right hand. Mm -hmm. Acts 2, in the middle of Peter's sermon, he talks about Jesus inheriting the throne of David, ascending to the right hand of God. So without question, who's the child here? It's Jesus. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Question number two, who's the dragon? This is Satan. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Are we guessing that it's Satan or is it a good way to prove it's Satan? Verse 9 says the... uh... The ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Yeah. And so let's read up to that verse. Verse 7. There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels, there's Michael and his angels, going forth to war with the dragon and the dragon ward and his angels. So Jesus has been caught up to the right hand of God. And then there's a war. On this side, you have Michael and his angels. And on that side, you've got the dragon and his angels. Who wins? Michael and his angels. Yeah. Because of the dragon and his angels, they prevailed not. Neither was their place found anymore in heaven. And the great dragon was cast down, the old serpent. He that is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was cast down to the earth. And his angels were cast down with him. And I heard a great voice in heaven saying, Now is come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, who accuses them before our God day and night. Let's, let's pay attention to this a little bit before we go ahead. The role here, if, what's the word Satan mean? Adversary or accuser. And so he's the accuser of the brethren. What role do we see him in in the book of Job? He's the one who accuses Job, yeah. And wanting to accuse. He doesn't have something yet to, but he's trying to find something and say, well, if you let me do this. And so here, and of course in Job, where was he described? Where do we see him? Among the sons of God. Sorry about the truck. True. No, I was going to say, there's that motorcycle. Yeah, yeah. That was an 18-wheeled motorcycle. <laughs> and, uh, all right, so the accused of the brethren cast down, and there's rejoicing in heaven, but then there's a warning for the earth. What's the earth warned about in verse 12? It says, look out, the devil's come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. All right, and then in verse 17... The dragon waxed angry with the woman and went away to make war with the rest of her seed. And who is that? Going to be Christians. Yeah. The text says those that what? Those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So you see see kind of a three-prong attack here or battle. You have the devil is trying to destroy the Christ when he's born. And I'm going to let one of you talk here and I'm going to go post some witness. Would you say that, uh, uh, Stephen, would you, wouldn't you say it looks like Michael is a warrior? In some ways. Yeah. I mean, we don't know a lot about uh, his exact 
orders, uh, his commands that he's given, but it says, uh, verse 7, now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. So there seems that there's angels that are under the command of Michael to some extent. That sounds like kind of an army role. And of course, they're doing battle against Satan in this and that's decision. The, that's a similar role to the Michael who is a chief prince, uh, over there in Daniel chapter 10, he's going to be assisting someone else who's fighting. So I get that impression that at least in these two verses that we're looking at Michael as a warrior. Okay. So go ahead. Go ahead, Scott. All right. So he, he fails at destroying the Christ. And then in, when Michael and his angels come war against him, he fails uh, here. He's defeated. He's cast down. Jesus has been victorious. Uh, Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead, in which he conquered two phases of death. You have spiritual death and physical death. On that Friday, Jesus solved the problem of spiritual death. He died for our um, sins. And on Sunday, he solved the problem of physical death when he rose God. from the dead. Yeah. And so uh, he's defeated. He's cast down. And so now he's going to attack the followers of Jesus. One thing I want to say before we get back to Michael is just this. Did it say anything here about that the devil would sit back and wait a couple of thousand years? I don't see anything. Oh, so this is the setting for the attack of the Roman Empire upon, upon the church, contextually. Now let's come back to this. Is there anything in this chapter that indicates that Jesus is Michael the Archangel? I don't see it. In fact, Michael is doing battle, and I mean, the picture here is Jesus is the one about to be born. <laughs> um, it's kind of the picture. So, or, or he's the one that's up on the throne, and Michael is the commander of the army or b battling in a war. Yeah, and I think it's kind of interesting that it's not the father that wars against him. It's not Jesus that has to go war against him. It's an angel. The angels can take care of this, you know, uh, in the picture of the battle. So now let's take a look at this. Is it the, one of the reasons involved in this is because Jehovah's Witnesses deny the divinity and deity of Christ. And so they identify him as Michael the Archangel based on an argument we mentioned uh, in, uh, a while ago. Um, and the, if we look at the book of Revelation, there's something that really doesn't fit about that. What does not it, besides it doesn't say it, what's something really out of sync with the idea that Jesus is just an angel when we look at the book of Revelation? Something to do with uh, worshiping Jesus? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Later on in the book, in chapter 19 and chapter 22, there are two times where someone falls down and tries to worship an angel and both of the angels immediately say, no, 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 no. <laughs> Don't do that. Let's look at those real quick. Uh, one is in revelation 19 and verse 10. And this is John speaking revelation 19, 10. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. Well, let me back up to verse nine. And the angel said to me, write this blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. So he's speaking to an angel here. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. 
And then again, in chapter 22, right at the end of the book, um, it says in verse 8, uh, Revelation 22, 8, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. So this message of worship God, and I want to run through real quickly just some other places in the Bible where we have this message. Let's start with Matthew 4. In the temptations, you have uh, the one about turn the stone to bread. One of them was fall down and worship me. How does Jesus answer it when Satan asks to be worshipped? Matthew 4. Quotes from the Old Testament says you worship the Lord your God only. Uh, him only shall you serve. All right, so that's Matthew chapter 4, and it is verse what? I'm not for the Verse 10. 10. Verse 10. Mm-hmm. Jesus yeah. said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Quoting from Deuteronomy 6 and verse 13. All right, so pretty self evident. We should not worship Satan. Uh, well, watch how this builds. When it says don't worship Satan, Jesus says in him only. Worship God in him only. So don't worship Satan, only worship God. Now let's come up a step uh, or aside to some other created things, animals, creeping things, and idols. And in Romans chapter 1, what had the foolish world done? They were worshiping images of corruptible man, birds, four-footed beasts, creeping things, so verse 25 says they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. creator, which is very similar to the idea, no, no, worship God. Now let's come up to the apostle Peter. Uh, was there an occasion where somebody bowed down before Peter? Yes. Cornelius. Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. And what's Peter's answer? Somebody read the text for us, please. I'm a, I don't have it in front of me, but it's, I'm a fellow servant. I'm Verse 25, uh, Cornelius fell down at his feet and worshipped him. Peter raised him up saying, stand up. I myself also am a, I'm a man. So no, don't worship the devil, only worship God. Don't worship these images of these animals and such. Worship the creator. Don't worship Peter. And then we come to the angels. And when John bows down before the angel, the angel tells him, let's read that one more time in Revelation chapter 22. Uh, See you do it not. I'm a fellow servant with thee and with your brethren, the prophets, and with them to keep the words of this book, worship God. Now that brings us back to Revelation 4 and 5. Somebody show us who's being worshipped in Revelation 4. It's going to be God the Father in Revelation chapter 4, the one who sits on the throne. Uh, so you got the vision of him that's very similar to the vision in Ezekiel chapter 1 at the beginning of the chapter. And later down, down in verse 8, it's going to say, And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, 
the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. Okay, so there's, you see the act of worship and you see the terminology that's saying that it is worship in Revelation 4.10. And you'll notice here, uh, some of the, we have some of the songs that we sing are taken from these verses. Uh, there in verse 8, you've got holy, 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 uh, Lord God Almighty, verse 11, worthy art thou uh, to receive glory and honor, etc. So we've got, who do you not worship? You don't worship the devil. You don't worship these idols. You don't worship man. You don't worship angels. You worship God. What's Michael in that category? He's not mm-hmm. the devil. He's not an idol. He's not just a man. He's, he's an angel, but he's still a created being. Yeah, so he should not be worshiped. This brings us to chapter 5. I saw on the right hand of him that sat on the throne. And who's sitting on the throne? Father. The Father. And he's got a book closed with seven seals. And it looks like nobody's able to open the book. And so John weeps in verse 4 because there's nobody to open the book. But then one of the elders says, don't weep. Behold, the lion that is of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome to open the book in the seven seals thereof. Uh, the Lion of Judah. Who's that going to be? Jesus. Jesus. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, he says, I look, so, oh, the Lion is overcome. But when he looks to see the Lion, verse 6, I saw in the middle of the throne and the four living creatures in the middle of the elders. What does he actually see? The Lamb. The Lamb. Yeah. So Jesus, he's the Lion. Jesus, he's the Lamb. And it's a Lamb that had been... Slain. slain. Yeah, standing as though it had been slain. And uh, then we see what? Let me turn the page there. He took the book, and now what happens? Uh, there, uh, verse 8. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the four and twenty elders fell down before who? The lamb. Before the lamb. But fell down before the lamb. Uh, and they have the incense, which is the prayers of the saints. And they sing a new song. Worthy art thou to take the book and open the seals thereof, for you were slain and did purchase unto God with your blood men of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And you made them to be unto our God, a kingdom and priest, and they reign, reign on the earth. And then again, in verse 12, worthy is the lamb that has been slain to receive the power, riches, wisdom, might, honor, and glory. And then again, uh, somebody read for us verse 13 through 14, please. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. John. Yeah, and just another distinction um, here. It's, it's interesting that you see what Jesus, the, the lamb here is worshiped for what he's honored for uh, the elders. When they're singing that song in, in verse nine, they say for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed the people for God. Uh, well, that's the same thing that it says in chapter 12 in, in that, in that vision of the, of the serpent of the dragon uh, after they had, Michael and his angels had been victorious in chapter 12 of revelation in verse 11, it says, and they conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Um, so there's just, there's just more power. There's more authority given to, to Jesus and the lamb than there is to Michael and the angels. Yeah. But Michael didn't die for our sins. He's an angel. It says an archangel. Uh, uh, verse, verse 14 now clearly states that 
everybody, every living creature, fell down and worshipped. In the same book that says, do not worship angels, worship God. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's striking when we look at the deity of Jesus, uh, that Jesus does not refuse worship, uh, either while he's on earth uh, or as he's pictured in heaven, uh, beside the one who sits on the throne, beside God the Father, the Lamb is worshipped. And he doesn't say, whoa, 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 no, no, I'm just a fellow servant, you know. Uh, but no, the Lamb receives worship. That's, that's an appropriate thing, mm-hmm. uh, because the Lamb is God. Well, Jesus always made himself out to be the Son of God, the Son of Man, deity, and that's what they accused him of when he was alive. And they didn't misunderstand exactly what he was saying. They knew what he was saying, and that's why they killed him. They wanted him executed. We have, does anybody have, we've got a question that's come in in the chat window. And so if anybody has anything further on that about Michael or Jesus, let's uh, wrap that up and get, then get over here to this question. Well, let's yeah, just finish it up with the fact that Michael the Archangel and Jesus are two different Beings. Jesus is God, deity. Michael is a archangel, and what does arch mean? Scott means a, a higher position than other angels. Would you say that's safe? Yeah, uh, Jesus is a shepherd and in in an overseer, and in uh, or, or Jesus is a shepherd, and in First Peter five, he's the arch shepherd above other shepherds and stuff. Uh, so it means higher. Stephen. One other example as we're talking about Jesus receiving worship, this was true even while he was on earth. One example of that is in John chapter 9 with the blind man uh, when they cast him out and Jesus encounters him again. A little later, it says in uh, verse 35, John nine thirty-five, Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. So, again, this would have been a perfect opportunity if Jesus was just an angel of some kind to say the same thing that the angel said in Revelation 19 and the angel said in Revelation 22. Oh, 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 don't do that. <laughs> or to say the same thing that Peter said. Oh, I'm just a man. And Jesus says none of those things. Instead, he says, for judgment, I came into the world. And so Jesus here accepts worship even in his human form. And uh, he's God in the flesh. All right. Anything further on that? All right. Thanks for the good discussion. Now let's move to this question uh, submitted from a listener. Why wouldn't God just save everybody no matter what? Wouldn't a loving God want all of his creation to be with him forever in heaven? Uh, does the Bible say in First John that God is love? Yes. Yeah, God's love is talked about a whole lot of times in the Bible. Is love the only attribute that we read about of God? No. He's also He's, just. Mm-hmm. He's holy. Yeah, give some biblical examples of that. Well, one of the things I think about uh, is sometimes people, uh, and sometimes even in this kind of question, you hear people ask this question, and they just assume 
well, if God wanted everybody to be saved, then he would make everybody be saved. Well, since everybody's not going to be saved, that means God doesn't love everybody. Well, that's not a true distinction to make. Uh, we know that God wants everybody to be saved. In passages like Second Peter chapter 3, mm-hmm. um, if you look down in verse 10, verse, we'll start in verse uh, 8, says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so we know the Lord wants everybody to be saved, but that doesn't mean everyone's automatically going to be saved. And in his justice, uh, let's let's just consider this. As we look around the world, uh, you you mentioned that God is holy. Uh, The book of Leviticus makes very clear that God is holy. Psalms makes clear that God is holy. Are people holy? Is the general population holy? both dedicated to God's service in the sense of set apart. And there were two Hebrew words for holy. One had to do with set apart, like an instrument in the temple was holy. And another word for holy had to do with your moral character. But putting both ideas together, are most people dedicated to serving God and living moral holy lives? No, certainly not. No. If God just took everybody as they are, into eternal life, what would eternal life be? I guess it would look a lot like it does here. (laughs) There'd be a lot of problems. Yeah. And so the problem would not have been addressed. The problem would not have have been taken care of. And so coming back to the book of Revelation, Revelation 21, 27 says, uh, no unclean thing is going to enter in there. Mm -hmm. And which comes back to our problem. How many, how many of us have been unclean? 100%. Yeah, give us a couple of verses on that. Well, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. And the Old Testament counterpart, Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. And what was the solution? The Lord laid on him, the suffering servant, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. He was wounded for our transgressions. Uh, Luke nineteen ten, Jesus said, the Son of Man came to seek and the lost. lost. But uh, while he calls the lost, the ones who received that payment to effectively are the ones in Matthew one twenty one. Joseph was told, name him Jesus, salvation is of the Lord, because it is he that will save his people from their sins. So the invitation is to become one of his people. But if I, if I live in rebellion against God, if in, in gratitude for the mercy of Christ in rebellion to God, why should I be, what, what point is if I'm the pig that after having been washed jumps back in the mire, is that the purpose of Christ's atonement? No, certainly not. Well, one of my favorite passages on this topic is what God says about himself to Moses in Exodus 34, Mm -hmm. because he talks about both parts of his nature. 
in this one passage. And Moses has just asked God to show him his glory. And this is a powerful text. This is a really important text uh, because when God talks about himself, we need to listen. Uh, It's easy to create our own God in our head. And, oh, I wouldn't believe in a God who would be, you know, fill in the blank. And when God speaks, he's allowed to tell us what he's like. Uh, We don't get to create God in our image. Uh, But in Exodus 34, in verse 6, it says, Exodus 34, 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And I'll pause right there. That's not the end of the verse, but lots of people stop right there. Does that sound like a good God? Yeah. I mean, that's awesome. (laughs) He's loving. He's slow to anger. He forgives people. Wow. I mean, who doesn't want to serve a God like that? But the thing is, if that's all God ever did, what would happen to all the wickedness that goes on on the earth and the people that kill other people and the people that rape other people? And would God really be good if he never punished anybody? No. He would actually be a good God. And so the rest of the passage says, this is picking up partway through verse 7, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And so when God talks about himself, he talks about these two key parts of his character, and we can't neglect either one of them. Romans 11.22, behold then, Paul writing, Romans 11.22, behold then the goodness and severity of God toward them that fell severity toward you, God's goodness. Let me, let me throw this out. We only have a few minutes left, but I think we can do it really quick, and it illustrates this. Uh, or Drew, did you have a comment? No, no, go ahead. Okay. Um, if you ask most people, is God merciful? Everybody would say, yes. Certainly. Is God punitive? Well, they might ask what that word means first, but when they find out that it means, <laughs> does he punish people? Then I suppose most people would say, well, yeah, the really, really bad ones, you know, Hitler or people like that. Yeah. And then if you said, which is God more? Is he a lot merciful and just a little bit punishing? Or is he a lot punishing or a little bit merciful? Most people, I've asked audiences this, they think he's very merciful. He's some punishing, but he's very merciful. Okay. Now, let's just uh, look at a few scenarios. We're going to challenge both sides of this equation. If we say he's not very punitive, he's just mostly merciful. He's not very punitive. All right. Um, Let's go back a few thousand years. The Lord asks you, uh, I've got a situation down here. The children, I brought them out of Egypt. I got Moses. I got Aaron. Uh, Aaron's got two boys, Nadab and Abihu. They've been in chapter 9. They've been doing things according to my word, doing things according to my word, doing things according to my word. Just now they did something not according to my word, Leviticus chapter 10. What should I do about it? How many of us would have said, uh, what, what would we have maybe suggested? Well, give them another chance, you know. Maybe a little bit of punishment and remind them, don't do that again. And what does God do in Leviticus 10? Well, he doesn't slap their wrist. What does he do? It consumes the fire from heaven. Yeah. How many of us would have decided, 
consume them with fire. And that's, that's what the text says happened. Uh, Uzzah, David is having the ark moved not in the correct way. You're not supposed to touch the ark. The oxen hits a, a rough spot in the road. Uzzah is afraid that the ark will fall over. Uzzah reaches out and touches it. God asks you and I, what should I do? How many of us would have thought, we'll just kill him on the spot? <laughs> I wouldn't have thought that. Um, somebody said, well, that was the Old Testament, back when God was in a bad mood, <laughs> you know. <laughs> okay, Ananias and Sapphira, they have believed in Jesus. They're assembling with the saints. They are taking the Lord's Supper. They are, uh, they've confessed Christ. They've sold a field and they're acting like they give it all to the Lord, but they must have given a significant portion, enough to make it look like it was all. And Lord says, what do you think I ought to do about it in a nice inspire? How many of us would have said, strike them dead on the spot? Well, first of all, clarify that they were guilty of lying to the Holy Spirit. Yeah. But and, and in that lie, you know, they did some good things and then they did this. Most of us wouldn't say, oh, I think they should just be struck dead on the spot. And yet what happens? They were struck dead on the spot. <laughs> struck dead on the spot. So let's go back and ask the question, is God a God that punishes? Certainly. Yeah. So then maybe says, well, he's hardly merciful at all. You know, all he does is punish. Okay, here's a guy that in the Old Testament took another man's wife, slept with her, and then had that man killed to cover it up. Should he be in heaven? Let me ask you this way. Does he deserve to be in heaven? No. 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 Do any of us deserve to be in heaven? No. No. And if I just look at that part of the story, you know, do I really want? Yeah. But what does God do? He's repentant and God what? Forgave forgives, forgives him. him. Forgives him. There's some consequences that he still has to face. Right. But mm -hmm. he gets to live. Come to the New Testament. Here's a guy that went into houses and tied up women and men and drug them to prison. Their children might have been watching and crying and, and, and calling out, you know, his mom's getting drug away to go to prison. And in the synagogues, he would beat disciples of Christ. And he would vote for disciples to be executed. And who ends up writing about half of the books in our New Testament? Oh. Yeah. So my mm -hmm. point here is God's more merciful than we would be and God's more punishing than we would be. And it, we need to choose which side of those two extremes we want to be on. Yeah. And when you look at Paul's attitude about that, or really anyone who had received mercy from that, the, the punishment of God is, is severe, is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But on the flip side of that, the mercy of God is also very severe yes. uh, and very overpowering. And you look at yes. Paul's attitude towards that in, in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1. He says, I thank God uh, in verse 12 of, of 1 Timothy 1. I thank God who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to this service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with yeah. the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He's just fully 
he's in such thankfulness and, and fully overflowing from that. Um, and people always point at the severity of punishment, but don't point out the severity of, of mercy yeah. and grace. Yeah. Stephen. We could probably do a whole episode on this, but a very brief summary. People try to pit the God of the Old Testament against the God of the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament, like you said, Scott's just in a bad mood. <laughs> he just zaps people left and right. But some of the greatest statements of God's mercy yep. and patience are in the Old Testament. The, the prophet Hosea yep. lives out an incredible mm-hmm. picture of God's mercy and patience. And in the New Testament, there are some of God's great statements of judgment. You look at the words of Jesus to the Pharisees in Matthew 23 and other places. Yep. And God is the same in the Old Testament and the New Testament. He is both incredibly merciful and very just and going to punish the wicked. We are out of time, so let's wrap up with this. Where do we see the wrath and the mercy of God come together? Jesus Christ. At the cross. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that you see there both how much he loves man and how much he intends to punish sin. Mm-hmm. The wrath and the mercy come together at the cross. And yes, Jesus died for rapists and pedophiles and murderers and drug dealers, not so that they will keep being rapists and murderers and prostitutes and pedophiles and drug dealers, but so that they can turn from darkness into light and he'll pay for all those sins. And when people complain, well, there's so much suffering here, part of the time they're complaining about all the things that bad people do. Well, if all the bad people go to heaven together, <laughs> you have a lot of bad there. And uh, Jesus comes and offers to clean it up. I, I just want to add now to, uh, at the end of the program here that a lot of you are listening to these programs on the podcast. You've downloaded them and listening to them later on, and we're very thankful that you're doing that. And you don't have an opportunity to ask questions live, obviously, but we do want you to ask questions and give us information or things that you want us to talk about. So go to the website, go to BibleQuest.tv. And uh, after you listen to the podcast, get to your computer, go ahead and check it out. And there's a form there, just fill it out. We do want to have more questions and comments coming in from our audience. Uh, Today was two good questions that came in. And guys, I want to thank you for your uh, your input and and your knowledge. Good job. Thanks for those that sent in the questions. Thank you, everybody.